0: Scope the data that you care about, because a lot of data flows through our systems that's frankly boring, not regulated. It doesn't matter from a regulatory perspective, because it's not personal information. At the end of the day, that's what privacy is concerned about. So make sure when you're tracking down data that you know you have a you know some reasonable basis to think that you have PII in these data flows before you even you know get started there.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. And I am joined, as I often am, by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. How are you doing today? I am okay. So, we are going to be talking security and privacy today. This is something that comes up at Stack Overflow a lot because we have an audience of developers. They are hyper attuned to this stuff, they are always kind of on the bleeding edge of poking and prodding to make sure we're keeping things ship shape. And also, you know, I think pushing from a community perspective to make sure that we're being responsible with people's data and only collecting, you know, what we need essentially to improve the community and run our business. Yeah. So we have two great guests on the show today. This episode is being sponsored by Vanta and we have Rob Picard and Matt Cooper. Welcome to you both.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: So, Matt, let's start with you. Just uh, tell the listeners a little bit about sort of, yeah, how you got into this world. I mean, what was your first sort of experience with software engineering and what brought you to the job you're at today?
0: So uh, my name is Matt Cooper, Principal for Cybersecurity and Data Privacy at Vanto. I have uh, spent my entire career actually in some form of IT or security. Uh, I've done quite a few different things. Prior to joining Vanta, I got into uh, information security consulting space. So I was helping folks from a consulting perspective, get ready for a lot of the common uh, security and privacy frameworks. So things like HIPAA, SOC 2, ISO 27001. And then uh, about a year before GDPR became effective, our practice director said, hey, this GDPR thing, I think this has legs. We should go figure this out because I think folks are going to need help with this. And so we essentially spun up a GDPR practice at that time. Ever since then, uh, he was right. It's been uh, very popular from a consulting perspective, and we were helping a lot of folks with that. Long story short, we had a mutual client where we were helping them with SOC2 Readiness. They were using Vanta. I met the Vanta team, and they told me, hey, this is a super exciting space. Uh, you should pop over here, and the rest is history.
1: This all makes sense to me. I mean, your, your clients, I'm sure, like you, once you uh, help them get through these things, we all resent being asked to be compliant in a million <laughs> new things every year, but we certainly can use help doing it faster and more efficiently. Rob, how about you? How'd you get into the world of software and technology? And how'd you find yourself at Vanta? And what do you do there these days?
2: Yeah, so I am the security lead at Vanta. I've been here since uh, September of last year. So, you know, bigger than, uh, you know, older than half the company, that kind of thing. I actually got my start in penetration testing. I worked for a company called Matasano Security, which was, you know, kind of an old penetration testing firm, ended up getting acquired. I've worked at a couple of companies. More recently, I was at Robinhood for a few years as sort of an early employee on the security team there. I started a company and went through Y Combinator, did that for about a year before I realized like, hey, Fanta is doing really well in the security space. I should go see what's going on over there. And I uh, cold emailed the CEO and said, hey, I'm shutting down my thing and you might need me over there, right? So I uh, ended up over here at Vanta. And yeah, as Matt said, rest is history. Just uh, having a good time here.
1: Fantastic. I hope you took at least some of your Robinhood equity with you. God bless. <laughs> 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 yeah, let, let's dive into it. I, I guess, yeah, for both of you, can you give us like at a high level right now, talking about privacy frameworks and, and the changes, what do you see out there? And you know, what is most challenging to the clients that, that come to Vanta?
0: So this year in particular, there have been a number of changes to some of the major frameworks. Folks are generally pretty familiar with it, but, you know, ISO 27001, which isn't a privacy framework per se, but it's the information security framework, which, you know, is the basis of another privacy framework, the ISO 27701. That went through a pretty significant update where they added several new controls to the Annex A or our ISO 27002, depending on how you think of it. They took some controls out, they consolidated some things. Really, this is, I think, an effort to modernize the ISO framework. A lot of folks in the space, especially cloud companies, you know, one of their complaints is they're like, Matt, these these controls are dated. You know, like one example is that, hey, there's one control about network network controls, and there's like 12 controls around physical security. We're all in a cloud and we're, you know, not taking those things anyway. The core clauses of ISO are staying the same. So I don't think this will necessarily be majorly impactful for businesses who are in an ISO certification scheme. They can just work in these updates you know, as it makes sense for them. But uh, the goal here is that the, the controls will be a bit more modernized, a bit more cloud friendly and just you know, ready for 21st century. Moving on, uh, PCI also went through another major framework uh, update this year. It went from 3.2 to 4.0. I won't go into the details. You know, PCI is fairly dense. Uh, I will say one of a couple of the most impactful changes is that uh, service providers now are going to have to do a third party audit. So a report on compliance or a ROC in PCI terminology, whereas in the past service providers that had a lower level of processing were able to self-attest. And I think just with the risks of the third party environment, that's no longer sufficient. If you want to be a service provider, you're going to need to go through an actual formal third-party audit. Let's move down to privacy. This is probably the most dynamic and interesting space from my perspective. So one of the inherent challenges here is just the rapid pace of change in the privacy space. So you have, you know, things like GDPR, it came out, it's great, but now there are lawsuits and there are interpretations. And so GDPR itself is not totally uh, constant. It's continuing to evolve. And then on the U.S. side or just internationally, you know, we're continuing to see additional privacy laws either taking effect, as in the case of the United States. I think most famously, you know, California has now the CPRA goes into effect at the beginning of next year. Virginia and Colorado are also getting a lot of attention. They both have new privacy frameworks that are going into effect next year. And internationally, there are new privacy regulations happening pretty much all the time. So that I think is one of the inherent challenges is just how dynamic this space is, how frequently things are changing and companies are having to keep track of these things uh, just to stay current and stay compliant.
3: Yeah, I mean, that sounds like there's there's a lot. I had to deal with writing about uh, PCI and HIPAA, GDPR, and I never really thought about all the the changes in there. So what's, for engineers trying to keep up with this, what do they have to do? It
0: depends. First off, I would say, you know, I'll just use Vanta as an example. So Vanta is a software company. You know, Rob is a technical engineer. He leads our security effort. I support that team on the compliance and privacy side. And, you know, that really made sense for Vanta because we are a software company to have an actual engineer, you know, overseeing the full efforts. And so much of what we do becomes technical very quickly. That being said, I think it's a lot to just simply ask engineers to, you know, read the news about GDPR every day and, you know, figure out what that means for them. And so, you know, at Vanta, we have this specialist role that I'm in and I sit as part of the legal team. And so I, I do think it's helpful if you have essentially a layer of translation or a layer of interpretation or someone who can go out and it's really their job to stay on top of the regulatory environment and then help to translate that into concrete, you know, requirements that an engineer can then, you know, deal with just like they deal with any other requirement for software development. I'll turn to Rob, see if he has anything to add to that. It's my first take.
2: Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because I would say Vanta is actually kind of lucky as an example, because our product, you know, deals with a lot of these things, that we are going to have in-house experts like Matt who are really specialized in these things. Most startups at Vanta size are not right most startups at Vantasize are not going to have a sort of dedicated privacy expert you know focused on on how things are going internally i think without that you have to kind of work with your legal team you know either external counsel or internal you have to have some interpretation of what these things mean for your company and you have to translate that into at least high level requirements right like hey guys we need to list our subprocessors right that's a pretty you know basic requirement from a lot of these privacy frameworks So you have to figure out what does that mean for you? What is the definition of a subprocessor for you? That sort of a thing. And, you know, not everybody's going to need a full-time dedicated resource to this, but it's very useful to have one, (laughs) I will say.
0: You know, Rob makes an awesome point of, you know, it's a little bit different for Vanta because of the space that we're in. And I was going to add to that, I I won't belabor it here. We'll talk about it, I'm sure, further. But I do think if you don't have that opportunity... Making the effort to really understand the regulatory framework and how it applies to you can be hugely advantageous because it's confusing. There's a lot of detail and you can't just rely on what people tell you because people misunderstand, there's different interpretations, et cetera. So I do think right. you know, at the end of the day for the organization to under- really make the effort to understand this for themselves is well worth it.
1: Yeah, this is really interesting. I want to talk a little bit about sort of like how to keep track of all those things. You mentioned subprocessors. You know, it sounds like it would in some ways maybe be frustrating for engineers who are just focused on building product to spec and on time and on budget, you know, making sure it works well at the, you know, the memory and the speed and to all the different, you know, clients on the other end. When you're thinking about tracking data through all those subsystems, but also trying to build something that's great with APIs and microservices and talking to a million other endpoints, do you make those decisions early on in the architecture or is that something you can evolve, you know, Matt, to your point as new legal cases move through or new, you know, organizations kind of update their frameworks?
2: You know, I can jump in on that. I think the key here is you want to plug into the like procurement process. And at a larger company, you have a very robust procurement process, right, where it's, you know, it's got a million checklists, legal is going to see every vendor, security is going to see every vendor, IT, enterprise engineer, they're going to see every vendor, they might even run the process. At smaller companies, you're not going to have that. But in theory, somebody has to pay somebody eventually, right? So you need to plug in there. And at the bare minimum, I mean... I cannot stress enough how much I am not the right person to interpret these laws. But at the bare minimum, you really need to be (laughs) at least tracking where your customer data is going, like which third-party companies. And and that can be scoped a million different ways. That can mean a million different things. Maybe it's emails. Maybe it's IPs. And that's where you get into having a good lawyer or a person who is an expert in this space to interpret it. But you just need a checkbox somewhere. When you buy a new tool that says, hey, do we need to add this to the website? And maybe notify people. Maybe you notify them every now and then, that sort of thing. You don't have to go so far beyond the maturity of the rest of your company.
0: I would add to that. I, I think that's definitely like the right way to do it. The best way to do it is attack it in that procurement process or really upfront before you start sharing data, understand what you're going to share, you know, when, how it's going to be used, et cetera. But, you know, kind of to the point where i made, not everyone can do that. Or maybe you're coming into an organization and this is now your responsibility and they just didn't have the capability to do that in the past. And so there could be just a little bit of like brute force effort with the engineering team to just come in and unwind what's already in place and just take the time to go through and understand your current data flows, maybe remap those, et cetera, and just do that work. It's just work effort at that point.
3: Yeah, I mean, with the with, uh, systems getting so complicated these days you know, like Ben said, with microservices and APIs and the cloud, how do you go about tracking your data through all those subsystems? Like, I remember, you know, companies having enough trouble figuring out what services were even running in their cloud.
0: Yeah. You know, on the one hand, the tooling environment in the space is getting, is, is maturing as well. There's, you know, we work with a lot of SaaS companies and there are a lot of cool new products that are trying to solve these business problems. One tool I looked at was basically an API level DLP tool, which is going through and trying to, you know, use some AI, what have you, to analyze data flows through API connections. Again, those aren't probably silver bullets, but there are a lot of interesting, you know, products that you can use to apply to this problem. Second part of my answer would be scope the data that you care about. Because a lot of data flows through our systems that's frankly boring, not regulated. It doesn't matter from a regulatory. Perspective, because it's not personal information. At the end of the day, that's what privacy is concerned about. So make sure when you're tracking down data that you know you have a you know some reasonable basis to think that you have PII in these data flows before you even you know get started there.
2: Really, the things you care about are crossing corporate lines. So when data you know data is mm-hmm. flying between a million different AWS services or Azure, you know Google Cloud services. That's fine. You have to think of like, okay, what are the different separate companies with different legal structures and environments and contracts that the data is going between? And you have to think the geographic, depending on your company and, and your customers. But you have to think, okay, is it going between US regions and European regions and AWS, that sort of thing. But you don't have to go, You know, every microservice doesn't have to be explicitly defined as a separate sub process or anything like that within your company, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, hey, your cloud provider, hey, your, you know, support system, maybe, hey, you know, some APIs that you use for data transformation, that kind of stuff, right?
3: That's nice. That simplifies it. (laughs) Yeah. How about uh, those systems uh, you don't control? How about like, you know, all your APIs, all your tooling all your open source dependencies oh
2: gosh yeah your cloud providers Jeez. like i said you know there's sort of these like the corporate boundaries that you have to really think about i mean from a security perspective you have to worry about all your open source dependencies you have to worry about a million different things that go beyond the sort of regulated privacy focused data but i think from all these systems you don't control you know it comes down a lot of times to getting the right contracts in place you get a dpa a data processing addendum in place and you make sure that like hey these companies you're sending data to and if you're using aws or like you know mongodb or google you know they have all of these things in place they have a very robust privacy program so i think where you need to really focus your attention is on the smaller companies that you're using and making sure that hey you guys are meeting the the boxes here to make sure that uh, you know if I'm handing you some customer data to process on my behalf, you're you're going to handle it with care, right? You're going to be a, a trustworthy steward of this data. But you know, most of your processors or most of your um, third parties either aren't touching data that is especially interesting. Or they have extremely robust privacy programs with like hundreds of people uh, working on it.
1: Let me throw one more, Or Matt, if you have something to say on that, you can. And then I was going to throw one more wrinkle in there and ask about when your developers start asking to use different open source projects that may or may not be connected to big corporations, legal departments. But go ahead.
0: In terms of systems you don't control, third parties you don't control, I mean, I totally agree with Rob. Just doing a due diligence on them, you know, using major players obviously can make that a bit easier. But the, the second thing I would say would be keep in mind what is the objective here? Because uh, security and data privacy can become like an endless rabbit hole. You can always be more secure. You can always understand things at a you know higher level of detail or almost always uh, for most organizations. But just keep in mind the frame of like, what are we trying to accomplish? You know, personal data. We need to know where it goes because it's regulated. We need to be able to be responsive to people if they're asking, Hey, what do you have on us? And who did you send it to? But there's a point at which you can answer that question and, you know, at a, at a human level. And that might be as far as you need to go. Meaning, you know, how much money, time and effort are you spending on this should be again, related to some sort of a business objective. So that's, that's a frame that I often throw out there to help folks kind of simplify because again, you can really get into the weeds, into the details and and quickly feel kind of overwhelmed with the complexity.
2: Yeah. So when it comes to, you know, hey, there's a million open source projects every company uses, right? And I don't even know if that's that much of an exaggeration, to be honest. I think it's, it's totally fine to use open source projects. I think the key is, you know, where's the data going when it comes to privacy, right? When it comes to security, we can have a whole conversation about how do you evaluate the security of these and sort of box them off within your environment such that the blast radius is reduced so that if something is wrong with these and it's a poorly maintained open source project you one can evaluate whether or not you should use it two you can you know isolate it such that the blast radius isn't that bad But when it comes to privacy if it's open source stuff that you're hosting yourself for the most part it doesn't come into play aside from just being responsible with that data and making sure you're not sticking it in some system within your own environment that is open to the public and, and, you know, anonymous access. But I think by and large, privacy doesn't come into play too much if you're using something hosted in your own environment or some tools that you're running on your own systems. I think if you're, you know, where, where it kind of blurs the lines is when you're using like brand new startups, you know, really early projects on their own servers and you're sending data over there, you really have to evaluate whether or not you're being responsible with your customer's data ultimately.
1: That's interesting because it is now that kind of presents another hurdle to newcomers as opposed to incumbents, as they don't have all that stuff built up. The DPA, they're not as ready to answer those questions. That's interesting to hear.
2: Yeah, and that's that's a really good point. I think luckily there's sort of a framework kind of or a sort of canon being developed out there where it's pretty easy to go and get a DPA. You know, if you're a newcomer, you can spend you know probably five hundred bucks and get a DPA from a lawyer, and you're going to be able to use that pretty much forever. You know, it's going to need to be updated over time, but that's just a pretty standard document. So there's some processes you need to put in place. There's a little bit of, you know, that problem, but hopefully over time it, it sort of gets reduced.
3: You know, we, we love talking about uh, DevOps stuff here. DevOps <laughs> folks, they they love to uh, automate everything. So how do we make this easier and automate security on this big complex system
2: yeah automating security is hard um you know i mean there's a lot of things you can do i think Mm -hmm. the the biggest thing to think about is if you're ever inclined to tell someone not to do something because of security you should ideally be putting in a technical control or evaluating whether or not it's really something you need to block right it's the question of hey you know do i need to put something in place that prevents this from happening with a break glass mechanism for when it needs to happen Or do I just need to give somebody more context, right? I'll give you an example. You don't need to block somebody from adding a new NPM dependency, even though there's a lot of, you know, a lot of mistrust of like the node package system amongst the security community, I think, Mm -hmm. just because it's so sprawling and it's so big and there's a lot of incentives to go and find little bugs with it and report them as CVEs. But what you can do is you can use tools that like put some context in a pull request, right? You, you go and, you know, add some code. It adds a dependency. It says, Hey, by the way, this is not very well maintained or there's some known vulnerabilities. You as the developer are now educated enough to make this decision yourself. You can you know refer to your security team or other developers on your team to say, do I need this? Is this the right call? But ultimately you're empowered with the context that the security Person would have, right? So I think a lot of automating security is really just automating context sort of at the right time, right? Sort of just in time, right? When it's the most relevant to you as the developer. In general, if you're just going to say no to something, the best way to do that is just make it almost impossible to do, right? Like put up guardrails, not gates.
0: You know, it's kind of a cliche security is a journey, not a destination. This is a process and it's ongoing. And so, in, in an ongoing process, some parts of that are repetitive, boring, you know, reminders, uh, tedious. Those are the awesome things to automate so that you can free up the human to do that thing that we're good at, which is the complex thinking, the you know, solve the hard problems and just free up that brain space from just remembering to run my vulnerability scan. Well, let's just automate that thing or remembering to, you know, do some sort of an activity or exercise um let's just take all that low hanging fruit, automate that because that's that's sort of the easy button and then we can continue to mature as we uh, go down that road.
1: So for folks who are listening, just, you know, give us a quick pitch we're almost at the end now. You know, how does Vanta do this is sort of the overarching question, but you know, why choose you and, you know, if I'm a client who comes, let's say given our discussion, I'm a medium-sized company, I don't have a huge legal or compliance department. I've got maybe some people who want to learn. And, you know, I'm using some cloud providers, I built some of my own stuff, and my developers are interested in, you know, using open source projects, like, I come in and and try to talk to you, give me give me a quick sales pitch on sort of what you think Vanta can deliver. And then we'll tell folks, you know, where they can check it out.
0: So, you know, Vanta does uh, automation, as we've talked about for a lot of these things that you need to do to maintain your security and get ready for audit. There are bits and pieces of other you know, things that were already happening in the market, but then there are some unique value propositions as well. So one thing to keep in mind, especially for folks who haven't done this before, are security and compliance tends to be like an organizational set of controls, meaning it's all over the board in terms of like what you have to gather and what you have to maintain and what you have to prove to an auditor. And a lot of times, especially in a smaller company or technology company, you have, you know, like a lead engineer. They're like, awesome. Firewalls, database encryption, TLS, like I got that. But then it's like, oh, you need the board minutes. You need the background check. You need a performance review. And so one of Vanta's value propositions was taking everything that you need, putting it in a single place so that you first off know what you need to do, which is a huge question for a lot of folks that are new to compliance what do I actually need to do to comply with GDPR? Like this is a question I get pretty much every day. And so taking that point of view, making it clear, like these are the things you need to do, giving you that single pane of glass and then reminding you for anything you haven't done, hey, you haven't done this thing yet. You're not in compliance. Like you need to fix it you know, consistently and uh, constantly on the hour is a big part of the value prop. Last thing I'll say, uh, this is a talk I just gave at ISACA. In my point of view, This space has now been proven to the extent that everyone will do this in the future, meaning the next, you know, three to five years. So uh, as an analogy, back in the day, you know, people might have, you know, reviewed logs. That's crazy. No one reviews logs anymore because the volume of logging in a modern enterprise is massive. So you're reviewing alerts from logs that a machine is checking for you to say, hey, interesting. I think this is interesting. This correlates with something. Let's check that. Similar in compliance, you know, we're still kind of moving out of the, you know, spreadsheet manual era, and in the future, no one is going to do that. Everyone is going to have a tool that dials it in for them, that tells them what they need to do, whether it's something custom or not, just because it perfectly makes sense and it's a perfect use case for technology.
1: All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. I'm going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge. Thanks somebody who came on Stack Overflow and helped to contribute a little bit of knowledge. We get have a, give out a lifeboat when somebody comes, they find a question with a score of negative three or less. They give it an answer that gets a score of 20 or more. Now that question has a score of three or more and it's been saved from the dustbin of history. Thanks to Ghul Ahmed, How to Detect a Browser Refresh in an Angular Project appreciate the knowledge. All right, everybody, thanks again for listening. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper, email us, podcast at Stack Overflow,
3: or leave us a rating and a review. really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at Arthur Donovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog post, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com.
0: Great. So yeah, Matt Cooper. Uh, I can be found on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, in real life. Matt Cooper, IRL Cooper is what I tend to go by. Also, you can find me at com, And uh, we'd love to talk to you if you have any any interest in security or privacy.
2: I'm Rob Picard, security lead at Vanta. Uh, you can find Vanta at Vanta.com. And you can find me on Twitter at It's Rob Picard.
1: All right, y'all. Thanks for coming on. And everybody else, thanks for listening.